the Going West Writers Festival and Auckland Libraries bring you highlights from the 2018 Going West Writers Festival. In this track, we hear Dame Fiona Kidman in conversation with Karen Hay on the session theme, The Life and Death of an Outsider, which relates to Kidman's award-winning novel, This Mortal Boy. Prolific writer, and national treasure, Dame Fiona Kidman has often written about outsiders trying to navigate conformist society. This mortal boy mines the same rich vein. It delves into the short life of Albert Black, known as the jukebox killer. Black's 1955 murder conviction and execution sat at the centre of a widespread moral panic. Dame Fiona discusses the story's moment in New Zealand's social history with broadcaster and novelist herself, Karen Hay. Atamarie, Morena, and welcome to the Going West Books and Writers Weekend for 2018. Thank you so much for getting here bright and early. Uh, I would like to welcome to the stage Dame Fiona Kidman in conversation with Karen Hay, and it's been lovely sort of round number, we've had these two on stage 10 years ago and they're back here now a decade on to continue the conversation about Fiona's new book, This Mortal Boy, and we would encourage you to stay on after the session as we've got a short reading from Amy McDade following. So please, a round of applause for Fiona and Karen. Thank you very much, Nicola, and good morning. And it's my great pleasure to be here with Dame Fiona Kidman after 10 years. Morena, yes, it's great to be here back, Karen. What happened in that decade? I don't know. Look, I, <laughs> I thought it was just a couple of years ago that we were talking. Me too. 10, scary. 10 is scary. We're here to talk about This Mortal Boy, your new novel, which is set in the early 1950s to mid-1950s in New Zealand and is about a young Protestant boy, Albert Black or Paddy, who comes to New Zealand uh, to seek his fame and fortune at the age of 18 and two years later becomes the second to last person in New Zealand to be hanged. Uh, and this is a time period which um, was very resonant in New Zealand's history, uh, social history. What is it that resonated with you at this time, and what were you doing? Well, I was I was a high school student, actually, at the time that uh, Albert was... I'd just finished school, actually, just a few weeks before he died. I really didn't set out to write a novel about, um, about Albert Black. I set out to... Um, to write something, a theme that I'd had running through my mind for a long time, which was about the fragility of youth. Because there are a lot of young people in my life, I'm very fortunate, um, and I've watched them grow with love and sometimes apprehension, and yay, they've all got through it, but there have been moments when I've wondered and I've watched, and I started to think about how fragile and how precious life is and how things can go wrong so easily. And I, I hadn't really worked out how to formulate this, a, a story around this idea, but it kept nagging at me. And then I read, opened a newspaper one day and there was a story about the so-called jukebox killer, who was Albert Black, of course. And I thought, Albert Black, of course. I was 15 when he died, 
And it was big news because he was only five years older than me. And that whole 1950s era is something that has resonated with me over the years. And I thought, that's it. This is a, man, this is a young man who had one terrible moment which, which changed not only his life but so many other lives and continues to resonate through the years now. Where did you live at that time? I was living in Waipu, and um, I'd just finished Waipu District High School. And, um, and I had, at that time, I'd just got my very first job, I'd, or I was, I think, because I'd, school had just finished, and I was going straight to my very first job, which was in the drapery shop in Waipu. And I was selling dresses to farmers' wives and... Um, and, and um, pearl bras to my contemporaries and <laughs> little bits of knickers and ordering fabric in and ringing up farmers' wives and sat on the rural delivery and saying, we've got a new dress and how about I send it out on the rural delivery for you to try on? <laughs> and every one, every single one that I sent out um, so was bought. They bought, <laughs> which was wonderful. And they did ask me to stay on and be at the drapery shop forever and ever. Well, thank goodness that didn't last. <laughs> <laughs> I still love Waipu. And it's pretty my... dresses. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Waipu's sort of my Taranga Waiwai. <laughs> so Auckland would have been the big smoke at that time, and uh, it's also the time, it, it resonates that with me as well, because it's my parents' era in Auckland, <laughs> and they often mentioned the, the milk bars and, you know, what Auckland was like at that time, with the trams and the, yeah. uh, the this, this boy was, Albert was a Protestant from Ireland, and there were a lot of sailors in town, a lot uh, a lot of racism going on with these immigrants. Yes, that's right. Actually, my, my own father was a, a Protestant Irishman. He was born in England, but and he didn't come from Northern Ireland. His family came from Cork in the south, but they were Protestants. And I really quite... That was one of the things that I, again, that I identified with Albert was that I... Uh, the, the feeling of the, my father, who always felt that he was an outsider... Um, he came here, but he never went home, but he always talked about home with incredible longing. And so when I was starting to construct these characters around Albert Black and Albert Black himself, I did, um, I did think about that. Now, Auckland was sort of... Trips to Auckland were few and far between, but... Oh, it was incredibly glamorous, you know. <laughs> and it was, a, it was the rock and roll era. And um, I, in Waipu, my big dancing occasions were, um, you know, the waltzes in the, in the Waipu Hall, but also square dancing. Well, it was, you know, it was due to, I was due to make the great move myself towards the rock and roll era, which I did a couple of years later, well, a year later. I was, I was a rock and roll girl in, in Rotorua. I'd moved on, and was I just a loved it. or a widgie? Um, I was drawn to being a widgie. <laughs> I, I had this sort of dream when I was, a, a, when I was 
at high school of, you know, singing in a band and wearing sequin clothes. Of course, I can't sing a note, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I could, but I did dance, and I just loved, I just loved that whole era of music. And I understand your parents sort of relating back to it, because although the 50s were a rather, are considered by a lot of people as being rather grey and rather difficult um, post-World War II. For us kids growing up there, there was a certain excitement. And throughout the book, that surprises me too, uh, about how, how radical it was in terms of what the youth were getting up to. Yes, but of course the, the, the radical um, youth that, that, that some of some of us became, and I didn't, I mean, I moved on to more respectable pastures fairly quickly. Um, but because it was a bit radical and because there were these immigrants and there was this music and there was also a backlash against it, which was perceived through the Mazengarb report. Sid Holland was the, um, the prime minister and his best friend was... Mazengarb, this man Mazengarb, and he commissioned Mazengarb to write a report about the goings-on that were being reported. The Parker Hume um, incident and death of, um, of uh, in, in Christchurch was an inciting incident, I suppose, for the Mazengarb report, but it brought about a frenzy of investigation of teenagers and what they were getting up to. And um, there was, it was said that there were terrible goings-on on the, on the side of the Hutt River in Lower Hutt. Um, and, and there was sort of stuff in the back seats of theatres and the hut. It all started in the hut. Interesting. <laughs> Where I That's the first time I've heard that. Is it really? Anything starting in the hut. No, <laughs> not that. <laughs> well, that's where the Mazengarb report started its inquiries, and it became a sort of a witch hunt. And, and I know the hut very well, because, in fact, my late husband taught there for 35 years. And um, so, you know, he has all, had all the children of this delinquent 1950s generation. But it was also at Nainai where, where it was also the place where Albert Black first went to live because he was a 10-pound pom. He'd, he'd chosen to come to New Zealand and it was to Nainai that he first came and lived. Um, you were indentured for two years to a government job, and he came and worked for the Post and Telegraph in Nainai. And I know the, I know the descendants. Well, I know one of the people with whom he actually, in the house he stayed, who, who gave me a lot of information about what he was like when he arrived and the lovely young man he seemed to be, a gentle, rather sweet-natured young guy who kept a pet hedgehog in a box and cried when it died and looked help played with the kids and this, the daughter of, of the who who I've been talking to is now an older woman but she she remembers at Christmas time he he and his friend who lived came with him Peter Simpson um, they had bought a music box for their landlady and she they had this wee girl he had this wee girl standing on his feet while they danced to the music and he sang a lot and so it was, it was, you know, it, it's interesting that 
that this Maisengarb report came out of what I think was what we would perceive as a pretty innocent sort of um, era now, but that report was posted out to, the, it, to every family registered for the family benefit in the country. So it came to my parents' house to warn them of what was about to befall me. <laughs> that was in 1954. <laughs> <laughs> and this mortal boy is a mix of fact and fiction, mm. and you've breathed life into... I, I say characters, but they're not characters because they were real people. The jury, uh, the, those who ran Mount Eden Prison, uh, Albert's mother, Kathleen, and his father and his family back in Belfast, and, of course, Albert himself. And what you've managed to do in this book, and so beautifully, is that you've humanised this boy. That's, that's, I'm really pleased to hear that um, because I think there are two sides to this story. I should say, there is a lot of fiction. There are characters in it, because the jury are characters. I made up all of them, and they're meant to be a kind of a Greek chorus to the, to the moral panic of the time. Albert never really had a chance, because, as perhaps I'll talk about a little bit later, what he had was, I believe, a mistrial. There's clear evidence that it was a mistrial. Um, but they're also living people. I mean, it's, although this happened in 1955, well, I'm still alive, believe it or not. <laughs> um, but there are other, there are other <coughs> living people who remember some of the incidents and were associated with the incidents. His, his daughter is actually alive, and I've talked to her. But, so I had to make up quite a lot of fictions. And I, the lawyers are, are a fiction. I mean, they're, they're based on what I believe are the personalities of the real lawyers, but um, they, are, they are total fictions. Uh, Kathleen Black, his mother, who was in Belfast and so passionately tried to get uh, a reprieve for Albert, she is partly an invention. She's sort of an invention. I went to Belfast and I researched the, the family um, as much as I could. So far as I know, there are no living um, uh, members of the family. His brother may be alive, but I couldn't trace him. Birth, death and marriages were very helpful, but... <clears throat> in Belfast, and they got really excited and really into the whole research project. So I was able to find out where he'd lived. I mean, I could walk past the house where he'd lived, walked over Boyne Bridge where the Orange Marches happened in July and so forth, and I, I was able to form a sort of a framework for the life that, he, that I believe that he lived. But his mother actually was obviously very much of the Sandy Row community because she was able to raise a petition with 12,000 signatures within the space of a week um, to implore the New Zealand government to, um, to spare his life. But the New Zealand government was very into the death penalty at the time. There were four young men who were hanged inside the space of about eight months in Mount Eden Prison. I also went through Mount Eden Prison, the now abandoned part of Mount Eden Prison, for which I'm very grateful to Corrections Department for allowing me to do that. Um, 
What was that like? It was horrible. It was just, I just thought about, you know, man's inhumanity to man. I have been in a number of contemporary prisons, but this is something else. This is medieval, and I, it's just left pretty much as when the last people were there. Shall I read a wee bit about Albert being there at the beginning? Good idea. And may, I think I might just pour some water before I start. Let me get Thanks. So here's Albert in Mount Eden Prison, October 1955. If Albert Black sings to himself, he can almost see himself back home in Belfast, the place where he came from. He begins it as a low hum in his head, but words start tumbling out louder and louder. I'm a wee fallery man, a rattling, roving Irish man. He's not sure what fallery means, but as Da has told him, he thinks it's about sorrow, which at this very moment he is feeling. A fallery man is harmless, just likes a bit of mischief, as Da has said. Shut up, Paddy, a voice shouts. Another voice will start clamouring in unison. Shut the shite up, Paddy. I can do whatever you can, he sings. Shut up, not really meaning it for him. It's just something to scream about when men are locked in stone cells behind steel doors. They shout and they scream day and night, and their voices are the one thing they have, their voices that the warders can't control. I can do all that ever you can, for I'm a wee fallery man. The trains that run past the west wing of the prison have been rattling all night. First the express that runs down south, then the goods trains, their long banshee wails trailing behind them. The morning train passes, and he raises his voice louder and louder to drown it out. I'm a rattling, roving Irish man, like it's a yodel now. No, you're not, the man in the next cell calls. You're a no-good ten-pound pom. Why don't you go back where you came from? That's me, Paddy thinks, as he straightens his clothes out as neat as he can, for there are no mirrors in this cell. Neither fish nor fowl, as far as these men are concerned. He speaks like an Irishman. He calls himself an Irishman, but he's from that no-man's land that calls itself the United Kingdom. But it's there, Sandy Row, Belfast, the street crowded with shops and life and people going about their business. He's no Kulshi. There are said to be 127 shops in the row, although he's never counted them. The corner shop, with all the items of groceries his man buys to make their tea. The rag shop, the barber's shop, the pubs where his da spent money they didn't have. There's the picture theatre and the butcher and the sweet shop and the stall that sells double-decker candy apples with coconut on top. Funny how you can go from one place to another in the blink of an eye. There's a chance in the situation he now finds himself he could be sent to the gallows. He sees himself standing on a platform, the audience waiting for the last act of the play. The platform will actually be a trapdoor. He will be fit and well standing up straight, 
The next minute he'll be down the way, dropped from one level to the next, in a different state, that of the dead. That's what he'll be doing, going from one world to another, his past and his future all rolled into one. All the people in this play will still be alive, but he might not. Who is to know what will happen next? He allows himself a pace or two back and forth, puts his eye to the slit in the door. The cell around ten feet by six consists of a slatted steel bed screwed to the floor, covered by a mattress of canvas and straw that still stinks from the piss of the last man who slept on it, a bench with three shelves where he keeps his notepaper and a book, the cigarettes his friend Peter in the South has sent to him, a bucket to shit in that is due to be taken away, but the man who collects it is always late, as if the task that lies before him must be delayed as long as possible. And sure enough, as he sets his eye to the aperture, there's an officer coming, the one called Dez, a skinny little man with an outthrust jaw, keys dangling in his hand. He lets Albert pass through the door, hands him his tie. They haven't given it to him in the cell in case he strings himself up. He's not ready for that, not yet. He fumbles a Windsor knot as he is hurried towards the outside world. Good luck, Paddy, someone calls from the floor above. The rancor gone. Fiona, you, as you mentioned earlier, um, you believe it was a miscarriage of justice. You make a strong case in the book that it was a miscarriage yes. of justice. What makes you know that? Um, well, let me say what makes me believe it. Um, there are a number of things. When... Um, I should just go back to a moment the man who Albert Black killed, because he did kill a man. There's no, there's no question about that. And he did, with, he stabbed him once with a knife. Um, the man was called Alan Jacques, and he was known as Johnny McBride. Now, in the book, I've tried hard not to make Alan Jacques an evil or horrible person although he was behaving in a fairly horrible way at that time. Alan Shark was a child migrant, different from Paddy. Paddy was a, um, had, was an assistant migrant. Alan Shark had come, uh, come to New Zealand as a child migrant. That awful scheme where kids were just sent out en masse on ships, taken out of orphanages in Britain and shipped to the colonies, as it were. And he had this. He was at the upper end, upper end age scale, of the um, of of how old my child migrants were. He was about sixteen, and he'd come because mostly was. Oh, I think he was seventeen when his sisters had, who were quite a bit younger, had been sent out. So he was sent as effectively a companion to them, like a lot of. Most many of those child migrants, he was shipped off to a farm down south, where he was effectively did sl slave labour, and um, then, as when he turned eighteen, as I understand it, he did his compulsory military training. 
He'd, so he'd had this difficult, lonely background and he wasn't living with his sisters. And he was very bitter about being in New Zealand and he desperately wanted to go back to, to the UK. After he came out of the army, he assumed the name of Johnny McBride. Now, Johnny McBride is part of the, the 1950s story because he was, take, he was the central character in a book called The Long Wait, which was written by Mickey Spillane. And those of you who were around in the 1950s possibly knew books like I, the Jury, which were banned in New Zealand at the time because they were very violent books. Um, they were, I mean, during this era of the Maisengarb report and so forth, there was actually book burning going on up and down the country. Bookshops were being raided and books that were um, considered bad and so forth were being taken up, taken out of, out of the shops and, and burned in the streets, which is really hard to believe, but it was happening. So I think the the... the Attraction to them was greatly enhanced by banning them. I mean, it wasn't too difficult to get hold of them. I had either jury slid to me under my English textbook at Waipu District High School. <laughs> <laughs> but Johnny McBride was the name of the central character. He was very violent. He was very... Um, he, 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 it was very bloodthirsty and... Alan Shark took the name of Johnny McBride when he went to Auckland. Now, he had been living for a while in a boarding house which Albert Black was running. Albert Black had come to, left Nainai, gone to, come to Auckland to live, and had been offered a place to stay by a woman who, was let, who wanted to leave her boarding house empty in Wellesley Street. So she asked Albert to look after it. He wasn't supposed to have any borders there, but he was a kind-hearted guy and he let quite a lot of the English seamen um, come and stay with him. And Johnny McBride was um, one of the people who, who came to stay with him. They didn't get on. Um, Johnny intimidated um, Albert. He was much bigger than he was, than him. Um, he carried a knife. And the night before the incident in the in the milk bar, um, the cafe in Queen Street, he there had been a party at Wellesley Street, and he had beaten Albert Black almost senseless. It was to do with a girl, um, and Albert was 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 really had been sick for a couple of weeks. He was badly beaten up. He'd been intimidated by by Johnny McBride, and. When he went to the cafe the following evening, Johnny McBride had threatened the night before to, um, to, to finish the fight that they'd started the night before. I believe, and I really, I won't tell you all the events because they're in the book, but I believe that um, at the particular moment that this incident happened, Albert's had been threatened again by Johnny McBride in the in the cafe. It was he believed it was the only way to save his own life, um, and he got up and he went like that with a knife, not intending to kill him, but to to frighten him. And some other young men who were there rolled him over, and the knife went right through his neck. 
Albert went immediately to the police station and gave himself up. The police came down, gathered up a number of witnesses. There were some young English migrants there who offered themselves as witnesses, but the police said they had enough witnesses. Um, long, sorry, this is such a very, this is a long answer to your question, but I needed to give some context to the fact that there are actually at least four witnesses who the police did not call. Um, there were the three Englishmen who had actually, see, who were teddy boys, who were told that they were not required. There was another young guy called, um, who was known as Pooch, who was, had, who then the next day committed a crime and was sent to Borstal and Invercargill. Pooch always believed that he had evidence that would have um, proven that Albert had been intimidated in the milk bar. And he, he was not allowed to come back to Auckland to give evidence. But behind all of that, there was so there were all these missing witnesses, and most of the witnesses who gave evidence had a reason for one reason or another to 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 not want to be involved with the events of that night. Um, but the other reason why I think it's a mistrial is because the judge who who sat, who presided over the grand jury, which doesn't exist now, had um, had said some things about Paddy um, to the to this grand jury, which said we don't want this man is obviously a murderer. We don't want people like him in our country. He's an outsider, um, and not he belongs to a peculiar cult of people meaning that he was hanging out with bodgies and so forth. This was not supposed to be reported in the newspapers until after the, the jury trial had taken place. While the jury were meeting, the, Her the New Zealand Herald and the Auckland Star did report this and the newspapers were delivered to the jury while they were making their deliberations. At that point, the trial should have been stopped. And this is why I know that it was a mistrial in that sense. Whether one comes to the conclusion that Paddy was guilty of um, Manslaughter or murder, I think, is not for me to say. I know I have my own opinions. Other people may decide differently. You know, they may say, well, he was a, it was murder. But the jury did not hear all the evidence. And they were... It was a tampered with jury. And it was all over a girl. Well, there were more than one, but it was... There were, there were several girls, Several yes. girls, but um, the, the one in question, a 16-year-old that... Mm. She got name suppression, but you've called her Rita Zilch? I called her Rita Zilch, yes, and, and her name is... She, for all I know, she is still alive. I was given the transcripts of the trial, and uh, for which I'm very grateful to... Um, a man called Red Majuska, a fine writer who wrote a book called All Shook Up, and he had managed to access the partial transcripts of the trial. 
Yeah. Gee, so um, what Rita was saying in court, was that actual? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was yes, it? Yes. Oh, yes, these are her actual words, yes. You really must buy this book because <laughs> that astonished me. I, uh, she came across as, well, I'm using a modern word, so ditzy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But she's 16, I guess. Yeah, she was 16. And, you know, I mean, I could identify with Rita a little bit. I mean, she's just a kid, just out of school, proud of her shorthand skills. Um, she'd climbed out of the window to go to the party the night before. Well, I'd climbed out of windows to go to parties when same. I was 16. <laughs> same. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, it, it, Close up the end of the road <laughs> uh, under a bush. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. So, so Rita was just a kid, and but she was playing to the gallery. There was, I'm sure of that, yeah. And then there was the love of Paddy's life. Was she yes. a real person? She must have been because there was a baby at the end of it. There was a real person who's, who's I called Bessie. Yes. And she is a totally fictionalised character. I haven't met her, um, but I have met her daughter who was, who was born three months after Paddy died. And um, and she must have been astonishing. Yeah, she's a wonderful, brave woman, um, and meeting her has been a great privilege. Well, what's her view on it? Well, she she really wanted to know more about Albert, which she'd been about because him, yeah. I mean, the record up until now has been that this was a guy who came out from Belfast and murdered a guy in a in a cafe in Auckland and was hanged, which is not a great image to have of your birth father. Um, so she really wanted to know more about him. And I was through a series of... I'm quite a good researcher. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. And through a series of, of um, links, I was able to find her and contact her. And I had been to Belfast, and I'd done all this research in Belfast with births, deaths and marriages and in the Linen Library and walked the, walked the talk in a way through, through, through the places that I... because place is really important to me. So I said, look, I was aware that she was wanting more information about, about her father and I, I asked nothing of her, but I thought this was her birthright and she, I would like her to have the information. And through that we formed a relationship and we're in touch and we've met and as I say I don't I don't ask anything for her but she is one of the people to whom the book is dedicated. dedicated yes. She's known as E H, yeah. She lives in New Zealand. She does live in New Zealand, yes. Right. Yes. There's also been a play about not very far away. Oh, all right. <laughs> Perhaps she's here. Um, there's also been a play about Albert Black, yeah, hasn't there? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I went to a production of that in Whangarei just about three weeks ago, Did about you? a month ago. Yes, it's written by a man called Peter Larson, who is also a great help to me, and it's based on Red Miyuska's All Shook Up book, and it was performed by <coughs> Whangarei Girls High School. So I Gee. went up to see it. it. It's very musical. It's I mean, you just want to dance the night away when you hear it because it, it's, it's about, not just about Albert Black, it's called Albert Black, but it's also about the Parker Hume murder and about the Frederick Foster 
event which took place in Queen, also in Queen Street in a milk bar just the same year as, as Albert's. Um, uh, he shot his girlfriend in, in a milk bar in Queen Street. Um, and, um, and so the play is about that too and leads up to, to Albert. But there's a lot of rock and roll and it's just, oh, I love it. <laughs> you know, Chuck Berry, Bill Haley, yeah, I loved it. it, was, it was, I wanted to draw, and I, there's quite a lot of reference it's to music. Wonderful music. thread of music going yeah. right through from the Irish songs. Yeah, the Irish songs, uh, yeah. You're through to the songs of the day, but uh, uh, you actually have so many lyrics in there yeah. uh, as to what you know, Kathleen and her husband and Albert's yeah. father would have been yeah. singing. Yeah. Uh, and very musical. Yeah, well, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's my Irish side. Kind of, yeah, because because I am half Irish. Yeah. Would you like to do another reading for us? Um, okay. So this is the... the um, this is... One of the things that I, I is I had this all carefully marked. God, here we go. Um, one of the things that I think has affected me is the number of people who were who were deeply affected by Albert's death, by the hangings. Um, and I say it it was his mother. It was the arguments that were going on in in, um, in Parliament at the time between Ralph Hannon, who was very against the death penalty, and the late Sir John Marshall, who was very much for it. He had a genuine and honest belief that um, that it was more humane to kill somebody than to leave them in jail for the rest of their lives. Interesting concept, but that was what he believed, and I, I accept that it was a genuine belief. There was the, the, the jury who were affected by it. There was the lawyers. All of these people who in some way were caught up in, in this thing. So I've imagined um, the lawyer who I call Oliver Sullivan, uh, Oliver Buchanan, sorry, um, who's based on, on roughly on an outline that I read about the real lawyer. And so it had been Oliver's duty to inform Albert Black of his victim's identity. It was hard to know what to call him or either of them, Paddy or Albert, Alan or Johnny, formal or informal. He felt that he should keep his professional distance, but Paddy seemed to fit best. He watched the stunned look on Paddy's face, the growing bewilderment. Why didn't he tell me? What difference would it have made? Oliver asked, trying to conceal a hint of sarcasm. And perhaps I could have been a friend to him. He wanted to go home just like me. It doesn't seem as if Johnny wanted friends, Oliver said, softening a little. He was just a lad, younger than me, I should have known. Known better than to kill him? We could agree on that. Paddy put his head down almost to his knees and wept. I didn't mean to, he said. I meant to frighten him. I thought, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You thought what? I thought that I would scare him off, give him a bit of a nick, and maybe I'd serve time and, and get deported back home. Well, something like that. 
I wasn't thinking very clearly. I'm so sorry. Oh, the stupid little shite. Oliver asked his sons if they read Mickey Spillane's novels. They smile, shrug and tell him it's kids stuff. The older one is doing a degree in English literature. At the moment he is reading the works of Thomas Hardy. Oliver recalls the phrase of Hardy's. Wasn't it he who said that for every bad there is a worse? Oliver has read The Long Wait and and is repelled. It startles him now that someone could identify so closely with the amnesiac anti-hero of Spillane's novel. He marks a paragraph in the book. One was going to die. One was going to get both arms broken. One was going to get a beating that would leave the marks of the lash striped across the skin for all the years left to live. Was it possible that, like the character at the book's centre, Alan Shark had so lost his own sense of identity that he believed in the new one. He stays up late rereading the book with a mounting feeling of self-disgust. In spite of himself, he is compelled to read on. His family lies sleeping as he reads. When he finishes, he steps outside. It is a clear night in the beautiful garden. The stars sparkle with a sharp, edgy brilliance. Stars have always fascinated him, and now at close to midnight he sees the Milky Way trailing its pale radiance across the sky. In the northern hemisphere, some will have moved into autumn. Oliver cannot imagine wanting to live anywhere else but here in Auckland. He has tried living abroad, and it didn't suit him. But the young men in this tragedy, neither of them wanted to be where they were, and one has already died. His sympathy for Alan Sharks has been aroused, but he sees that it's possible that what Albert Black has been saying might well be true too, that he was terrified of Alan Shark, the boy who called himself Johnny McBride. If Black saw himself as an outsider, Shark's feelings went further than that. The outcast. Someone was going to die and as it so happened, it was him. Thank you. you. Anna, what was the reaction in New Zealand, if you recall, to the hanging at the time? Um, Well, you know, I was only 15, so I can't make too many judgments about that. I think there was a strong, uh, I mean, I do have, I did have a very, it's hard to talk about this really, but on my mother's side I had a very conservative family who thought that, you know, if if you did the crime you took the punishment and that hanging was okay. And I think a lot of people did think that hanging was all right. But when, when Albert died, there was, um, there was a truth reporter there called Jack Young. And Jack Young, the media were, a few media were allowed to witness the hanging. And on the condition that they made a very straightforward account 
that they didn't embellish it or say anything that might upset people. Jack Young went there and he broke the rules. He wrote an anonymous piece. It wasn't until years later that he was revealed as who, as who he really was. And he wrote the most graphic and horrifying account of, of what the hanging actually was like. He described the hangman coming out wearing a fisherman's hat low over his forehead and dark glasses and an oil skin up round, up round his ears and all the things that led up to the hanging. And Albert's last words to those who he was asked if he had anything to say. And he said, I wish you all a Merry Christmas, gentlemen, and a prosperous New Year. And then he died. And that was described in a way that was, you couldn't help read it but being incredibly moved and incredibly distressed by it. And that description began to change the way people saw executions in this country and was established, in my view, Albert's place in history because it led to a tide of disgust, really, that swept throughout the country and led to the abolition of the death penalty uh, for murder. I think it remains for, tre for treason um, a couple of years afterwards. Ralph Hannon, who had been... Um, ch who had wanted the death penalty to be abolished, who'd so strongly fought for it. It was one of the last acts in his life, which was he died relatively young, was to persuade um, nine members of the National Party a year or so later to cross the floor of the House and vote to abolish hanging. So Albert, I think, has a place in, in, in our history as having led to that. There was one more person who was hanged after that. When you went to Maldedon Prison, did you see where the hangings were done? I did. Yes, I did. Uh, and the people were just... I saw the place because at the time, the people who were hanged were um, buried in a piece of land inside the prison walls. Their bodies have since been... Um, moved from there to Waikameti Cemetery. Um, I I don't want to sound sort of seancey and strange about this, but I felt in that piece of ground, which is just bare inside the walls now, I felt a profound sense of deep unease. Um, and, you know, I remember in... One of, as I was researching, um, and I think I touch on it in the book, there was a young Māori man who was hanged just a month while Paddy was there, um, and he was his brother was in the also in prison, so he's in the same prison where his brother is hanged, and outside his family is singing and crying and wailing, and you just think of the terror inside that place. 
Um, and I looked out of those cells in the upper gallery down into where <clears throat> where the place was, where the man who's going to be hanged is lit, strapped up like a log, really, bound up and shuffling in chains. A pretty frightening kind of place. That's a very moving description. I think that's a good place to leave it there and <laughs> perhaps a laugh for the end, yeah. Um, thank you so much for writing this book and illuminating this part of New Zealand's history. Congratulations, Dame Fiona Kidman. <laughs> To hear more published tracks from previous years, search Going West on this Auckland Library's podcast channel. Interested in the history of the festival? Auckland Library's Heritage Collections houses the full sound and festival archive since its steam train journey beginnings in 1996. Search Kura Heritage Collections or visit Heritage Collections at the Central City Library or research West in Henderson for access to the collection. Going West Writers Festival 2019 opens on the 6th of September and runs till Sunday the 13th. More information is available at the Going West website, goingwestfest.co.nz.